millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes a piece of pop culture and reveals there's really history lying just underneath the surface. Now I've covered TV, I've covered movies, I've covered even some music out there, but I really want to do my best to be as broad with pop culture as possible. That's why I ended up doing one on Monopoly. Yeah, I did a whole one on a board game. Please go back and have a listen to that one. Particularly proud of that one. I'm also quite proud, I have to be honest, of any time I do songs because a song is usually about three minutes long and I do a half hour podcast on it. Check out ABBA's Money, Money, Money on that one if you don't believe I can't do it. And I think it's important because if all I did was say, hey, there's this movie and it turns out there's a bit of history underneath it, then it turns into like a film podcast. And whereas I love cinema, it's very easy to just do film, 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 film. So I try and mix it up. You're never quite sure where I'm going with these. And I hope you enjoy the diversity of them. Because this time I'm taking the term pop culture and really playing with it, because this time round, I'm going to talk to you about food. food. Now, full disclosure, I did one of these podcasts with Greg two years ago, something like that. Listen back, it might still be on the list towards the bottom. Because what I what occurred to me many years ago is I was sitting there cooking up a meal And I realized that this was just not the way somebody would have cooked in Britain a hundred years ago, let alone 500 years ago. So even your kitchen tells you a story about global trade and all kinds of historical precedents and antecedents. So what I've got here is four different things that I'm going to say you have interacted with and probably eaten on a number of occasions and not realized how much history was involved with you just lazily producing this food or maybe ordering it in a restaurant. I really hope you like this one. I'm doing four types of food and drink this time round. If you like this, I'm not going to do it every episode because then it'll become a food and drink podcast. But I hope that you've had a chance to eat. I hope you really like this. Greg, sometimes when we used to do the conversational podcast, he hadn't 
eaten beforehand and even though we were talking about i don't know the hundred years war or something like that he would always bring it to food because he was very hungry so greg when you're editing this i strongly recommend you've had your bowl of cereal or a good hearty lunch because here we go we're we're dripping in food now you have been warned so let's start off with pasta now, you are probably aware that there are Chinese egg noodles and you're well aware of all the different types of pasta from Italy. So my question is, who, which civilization do you think invented pasta? Do you think it's Eastern or Western? Eastern or Western, what do you think? Well, the answer is in terms of provable solutions, it's definitely Mediterranean. However, there is a 4,000-year-old bowl in China which has some residue of millet in it, which has led to some Chinese archaeologists saying this is a sign of 4,000-year-old noodles. Now, I don't want to get too technical about this, but millet is gluten-free, so you certainly couldn't have created the traditional pasta out of it. Can you create gluten-free pasta? Yeah, absolutely. Go to your local supermarket, you'll find it there. But 4,000 years ago, it almost invariably was made to be a different type of meal. And this is the first point I want to make. China has one of the longest histories in the world. It has one of the most revolutionary and innovative societies ever. China has many things to be proud of. Right now you might be making notes on paper. You might enjoy the 4th of July or Guy Fawkes Night gunpowder. Those, those are just two major innovations that China invented, okay? China has invented lots of different things. The printing press, for example. I could go on, I'm not going to now. However, China, because it's so proud of its background, has a habit of trying to see what's popular in the world now and claiming that they came up with it first, even if there isn't necessarily precedent. There is more politics in their archaeology and history than there is in, let's say, France, for example. So there is pressure on archaeologists if they discover something like this. Properly, you should be able to say, we found the residue of a millet-based meal. That's it. That's all it would happen if you found that 4,000-year-old bowl in, let's say, Mexico. But because it's China, and because they're famous for their noodles, and all the written evidence indicates it's Mediterranean first, suddenly it gets turned into something else. Another quick diversion is China likes to claim that they invented football because there is this early first millennium bit of chronology, bit, bit of chronicle written about some kind of game involving the kicking of a ball. Now, it is pretty obvious that China doesn't have much in the way of a history of what today we would consider football. If you're American, I'm talking about soccer here, because China has never been a dangerous country in the World Cup, okay? That tends to be the likes of Brazil and Germany and France, all right? China has never even got to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. On top of that, we know that the modern sport of football was created in England in the 1800s. 
And why do we know that? Because if you look at 1900, there is already an up and running series of league tables in Britain and across Europe. But we know that those European ones took their lead from Britain. Whereas in China in 1900, nobody's playing football at all. So fine, there might have been this game a thousand years ago, but it got forgotten about. It is not part of Chinese culture, but because it's part of global culture today, China's trying to sort of jump in and say, yeah, we were there first because we've invented everything. And they've invented some things, but not pasta and not football. So anyway, talking about the actual noodles, the first records in China come from the Eastern Han period, which is roughly round about, it's a bit earlier than this and it goes a bit later than this, but the actual records on this occasion come from the first century AD, okay? Now, if we compare that to Horace the poet, he describes pasta in the Mediterranean in the first century BC. So there ain't a lot in it, but the reality is what you're eating today is a 2000 year old recipe. It can be linked back to ancient China and the Roman era, which is remarkable. You know, you're literally eating the same kind of food in a way. I mean, they had very different recipes then, but same sort of stuff as a Roman might eat. And the thing about pasta is it's incredibly filling. And obviously it's a carbohydrate and it's very easy to preserve. And that's really important in the pre-refrigeration era. Another quick sidestep, the reason why France is renowned for all its fish sauces is because while they like their fish, sometimes if you're gonna ship it over to somewhere like Paris, it might take a while. And there's zero refrigeration in, let's say, 1700. So the fish goes off pretty quickly. How do you cover up that very strong taste of slightly dodgy fish? Cover it in a very strong flavored sauce. So that's where that comes from. Obviously, sauces can be used with pasta, but the preservation of pasta, the dried pasta, which we all use, it's so easy. Oh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do tonight. Well, why don't you fry up some prawns with some onions and some herbs, maybe a little bit of a white wine in there, create a little bit of a sauce. Meantime, boil up some pasta and bang, you've got a completely tasty, healthy meal that you can enjoy. Knock yourselves out. So that is the world of pasta. So let's go to something else. Let's go to the world of cheese. C <laughs> it's weird to think that cheese has a history, but it does. Cheese is not a natural thing. And so I'm going to throw it out to you again. When do you think cheese was first invented? Where do you think is the earliest example of, in this case, cheese molecules? Okay. Where do you think that might be? Is it the Mediterranean again? Is it China? What do you think? Well, the answer is the earliest sample, the earliest evidence of a cheese-based material is from 5,500 BC from Kujawia, Poland. I might well be pronouncing that incorrectly. I apologize to the people of Kujawia, or however that might be pronounced. 
But yeah, 5,500 BC, so seven and a half thousand years ago. That is on the very edges of the Neolithic, slash towards the end of the Mesolithic. This is an era where domesticating animals was not standard around the world. Yes, it, it had happened, but it was not everywhere by any stretch of the imagination. So this predates Stonehenge by several thousand years. This is old, okay? Cheese has been around for a very long time. Now, the interesting thing about cheese, and this is something that maybe some of the listeners might be aware of, is cheese and milk obviously have lactose in them. And there is a concept of lactose intolerance. But what's interesting is lactose intolerance is the normal condition of human beings. Basically, breaking down the lactose in your stomach is incredibly hard. Why don't we give babies just cow's milk rather than either breast milk or a special formula? Well, the reason for that is cow's milk is designed for baby cows, not necessarily for baby humans. So actually there's, a, there's stuff in it that we aren't naturally good at breaking down. And this means that clearly for millennia, there were very single-minded human beings who were going to consume that milk and then later on cheese to get the nutrients out of them. But it would have made them gassy. It would have given them stomach cramps. Possibly it could have made them nauseous. So there was, a you know, for thousands of years, God bless our very bloody-minded ancestors, they were willing to get through all of this. Now, the question is why? Why would you do that? Why not hunt an animal, eat the meat, which you're absolutely capable of processing internally in your, in your, in your body? The answer to that is, obviously, hunting an animal takes a certain level of skill. You're not guaranteed a success. However, if you have, like, a goat or a sheep wandering along with you, well, you can milk it once a day and get some nutrients out of it. It's a, a very easy win to score a fair amount of protein, fat, and, and the nutrients that you need to survive. It's, it's sort of the risk-reward argument in this situation. And what's interesting is, in the West... We did far more of it than in the East. Now, that's not to say that there aren't any examples of early cheeses in the East. For example, I can go back to China again and say, around about 2000 BC, they found some evidence of some cheese there. But because it wasn't as prevalent today, right now in the world, there are more people in Asia with lactose intolerance than there are in Europe. And a lot of traditional menus, for example, Japan, doesn't have a lot of dairy in it because it just it never culturally caught on and there is also a fair amount of people in Japan who are lactose intolerant but that's not because of something that's been bred into them actually it's the opposite you could argue that their metabolism is more pure than the corrupted drinking of milk type metabolisms in let's say Europe I find this really interesting because milk and cheese are an example of something that's actually changed our biology to a certain extent and the other thing about it is, and I always love this, is there are lots of different types of cheese today. And actually, well, first of all, make a guess. What type of cheese is the most popular around the world? Have you thought of one yet? The answer is cheddar. 
in a way, when you think of cheese, it's almost like the standard cheese. Then if you want something more exotic and softer, you might end up with the torta de dolcelati. Or you might you want something sort of very tangy and blue, you might want to go for a roquefort. There are lots of different types of cheese, but in the range of cheeses, in the Venn diagram of cheeses, cheddar's in the middle. And obviously you can get some strong cheddars, but cheddar is actually English. Now, perhaps the country that's most associated with cheese is France. And indeed, there's this wonderful quote from Charles de Gaulle, which says, how can you govern a country in which there are 246 types of cheese? Genuine quote from Charles de Gaulle. And it's a great laugh because it shows sort of the regional variation in France. And, and if you like, I'm going to say most of the famous cheeses are French. I mentioned Roquefort, which is generally considered to be the king of cheeses. It's, you know, it's a very sharp blue cheese. In its traditional form, there would literally be maggots in it. But of course, because all those maggots weren't eating anything disgusting, they were just eating cheese, you were meant to eat them as well because they're just full of cheese, cheesy, wriggly goodness. Mm. And then there's brie. I love a good brie. So, you know, there are lots of famous French cheeses, but the reality is there are actually more types of cheese from Britain than there are from France. That was something that I've done the research on. It really is counterintuitive. And of course, today, cheeses, the vast majority come from cow's milk, but there are some pretty famous ones from goat's milk as well and sheep's milk, ewe's milk. So there are lots of different types of cheese. One of my favorites, or one of the most unusual one is Cornish Yarg. So this is a cheese from the southwest of England. And what's interesting is a proper Cornish Yarg is wrapped in stinging nettles. Now, because it's sort of wrapped a long time ago, you're not gonna get hurt by the stinging nettles, but there was this tradition that for some reason the, the, the chemistry of a stinging nettle, which obviously would irritate you by wrapping the cheese in it, it added to the flavor. Now, there it doesn't seem to actually be much evidence of this, but it's just something that's, that's very unique, obviously, to that area. It shows you a little snapshot of a culture from one very specific part of England that is kind of known by cheese lovers around the world. So yeah, cheese is a very, we talked about pop culture, absolutely cheese is linked to culture. Mm, lovely cheese. Gonna stop there, because we're gonna move on to the next one. Okay, so we've done cheese and pasta. But don't worry, this isn't just for vegetarians here, people. I'm gonna move on to probably the most pop cultural of all types of food, the hamburger. Which country do you think invented the hamburger? And if you're sitting there going, well, it's called the hamburger, Gem, and I know that there's a town called Hamburg in Germany, so clearly it's German. I hear you, okay? And interestingly, a bit like the whole China talking about how they want to invent everything, there is actually controversy around the hamburger. Because, look, there simply is a recipe from 1758 called the Hamburg sausage, which seems to involve a toasted bun which has meat in it. But if that meat is steak, then basically you've got steak baguette, you know, which is something that isn't necessarily specific to Germany. However, there is something called the Rundstückwarm, which we know was being consumed in Hamburg in 1869. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So that is definitely ground beef, minced beef, depending on which country you come from, in a bun. So that really is the start of the hamburger. And we know that at least it was started in 1869. However, there's great debate. People take pride in this stuff. There was a Danish immigrant to America who in 1900 claimed that they made the hamburger. Then it really caught, if you like, global imagination when there was the St. Louis World Fair of 1904. Now, if you're not familiar with the World Fairs, they kind of had their time. They still exist. The World Fair still happens. But what it used to be, particularly in the 1800s was an opportunity to show off to the whole world what your country slash at that point empire was capable of in terms of technical innovation, things like that. It's a forgotten fact that actually two very famous steel constructions come from world fairs. For example, there's the Paris World Fair, which created the Eiffel Tower because France wanted to show the world Britain, really, in the late 1800s, was known as the industrial powerhouse of the world because it was. But France is never going to take that line down. And France was, by the late 1800s, a very industrialized country as well. So to show their steel production, their engineering expertise, they built the Eiffel Tower. It was absolutely meant to be part of the World Fair, and it was. But the idea was it was meant to stand for like 20 odd years and then they'd tear it down. 
And when it was first erected, the Eiffel Tower is colossal. You really have to go there to understand how big it is, because you, you've probably been to some towers before or, you know, something else, large steel construction, like a radio mast or maybe something like a Ferris wheel. But they're all tiny compared to the Eiffel Tower. And so when it was first put up, it was seen as a complete eyesore. However, by the time it was time to tear it down, everybody got so used to it and it had become a symbol of Paris that indeed to this day, it's still there and it takes a long time to paint and it's got its own history. There was a con man in the early 20th century who sold it twice to unsuspecting rubes. It was used as a radio mast and a, a focal point of resistance during World War II and the German occupation of France and Paris. So it's got its own history, which I'm not going to go into now. But there's an example of one thing from the welfare. However, the welfare immediately after that in Chicago in America, they were wanting to prove that they were a great industrialized nation. So they created their own thing that has now become forever associated with not welfares. And that was a Ferris wheel. At one point, there was a plan to build a huge tower in Chicago so high that they could build. I'm really not making this up. This was genuinely a plan that they could build a metal cable linking the one in Chicago to the Eiffel Tower, which would have been insane. However, however, that's to one side. The Ferris wheel was indeed created for the World Fair. So the World Fair for some time was a big deal. People really pushed the boat out. And so in the 1904 one in St. Louis, basically hamburgers were in a number of spots and people were realizing how useful they were to be on the go. And so this is a classic example of one country invented it, another country perfected it and marketed it. And so while we can absolutely say, and with due deference to the fact of its origins, the hamburger is known as the place thing from Hamburg, the reality is it has been greatly adopted and enhanced by America. And indeed, it takes us into the post-war era with something like McDonald's. which started pushing out the hamburger around the world. That's basically what the hamburger story is. So it's actually far more modern than something like cheese or pasta, as it was always going to be. But in and of itself, it ties in the concept of world fairs. It shows international changes of population distributions, or sort of the immigration, emigration from countries and does show you that different countries solve that very human problem of I am hungry, I need to eat in subtly different ways. So there we go, the wonderful world of the hamburger. Now, let us move on to the last thing on our menu today. I really hope you've enjoyed this one. And actually, before I do, I'm going to, as oh, I always jump and throw these in, so don't worry, there's a whole section still to come up, but please, please spread the love. If you can click and review this on the podcast, that would be great. If you could tell one other person, if you could share a link on your social media, if you could please, please just spread the love a little bit on this podcast, that would be really appreciated. If you want to say something to me, if you like this episode, if you want, I would like more food history, Gem, then please feel free to catch me on Twitter. I'm at Gem Daduchu. You know, there'll be links below, below this on the podcast. Thanks very much for that. So yeah, there's lots of things going on. Now, I've talked to you about food so far. Let's wash it down with something. Let's talk about tea. Tea, a drink with jam and bread. 
So where does tea come from? I'm giving you a chance. The answer is China. <laughs> the answer to a lot of this stuff today has China's involved. And believe me, China absolutely has a claim. Now there is, it turns out, and we'll come to this in a, in a bit, it turns out there was actually tea in India, but they didn't realize it until the stuff from China had been brought in. So anything that's called Assam tea is a specifically different genus, a different type of tea plant to the main type of tea plant, which absolutely comes from China. So when was it first discovered? Well, there seems to be archeological evidence of it round about 1000 BC. However, we start getting formal like tea ceremonies and tea in society in the Shang dynasty of China, which is roughly, well, this part about the first talking about tea is from the third century AD. So that's more than a thousand years later, but tea's clearly been drunk in China for about 3000 years. And tea is incredibly important to China culturally. It started being exported and it arrived in Japan early enough that, that to this day, Japan still produces tea. There's the famous Japanese tea ceremony, which involves ground up tea. And that is because that's the way that during the Shang dynasty, they would have consumed tea. But as over time, things have been evolved and improved, actually China has moved on in its tea drinking. So in a weird way, Japan and China, where there really is no love lost between those two countries, they do not get on. But in a weird way, Japan has preserved one of the earliest forms of tea drinking from China. Now, the thing about tea is this blew my mind. If, if you are just learning this for the first time, don't worry. I only discovered this a couple of years ago when my wife went on a, on a holiday to India uh, with her sister and father, a bit of sort of family bonding thing. Green tea, don't know about you, but I always assumed that green tea was different to tea tea. Turns out it isn't. Green tea is actually how the, the plant looks. Green tea tends to come from a different part of the tea plant that main regular tea comes from, but also it doesn't undergo the oxidizing process. So basically what happens is the tea is picked from the plant and if you basically then package it immediately, that's green tea. If you, however, kind of crush it and allow it to oxidize, that sort of interacting with the oxygen, it browns, as all leaves do. But that sort of gets out the flavor. From our perspective, we like the oxidized tea. So already you can see that there are a number of different ways to prepare tea. And in China, it was an almost secretive ceremony. Tea farmers, who would therefore obviously produce the tea as well on the site at their locations of their farms, well, plantations is the term we would use, but basically it's the fancy word for farm. Those farmers would be better off financially than your standard rice farmer, for example. So tea had a certain level of cachet with it. And I keep saying the word tea, but of course in China it's called chai. And what's interesting is if you look at a global map, the countries that call it chai generally had tea delivered to that country, that nation, via land, via things like the Silk Road and stuff like that. So if you like, the word managed to make it as far as somewhere like Turkey, 
However, if it's called tea, there are a couple of exceptions to this because, of course, there's been empires and immigration and all this kind of stuff as well. But tea, generally, it was shipped by ships, for want of a better phrase. So hence why in America and Britain and France, it's called tea rather than chai. So I like that fact. That's a really interesting. So instantly what they call that beverage, you already know a little bit about its trade history with China. So the next thing is that when it was first used, and, and we're talking about the Shang dynasty here, it was used as a medicine. It took centuries for it to start being used as a pastime drink. And indeed, tea is the most popular beverage in the world that isn't water, okay? Tea beats coffee, and it also beats Coca-Cola, which is the world's most popular soft drink. Interestingly, tea has a lot of British imperial history to it. I said I was coming to that. But before I get to what's happening in Asia, I just want to talk about America. Because, of course, if you're American, you are well aware of the Boston Tea Party, which happened a few years before the American Revolution. But it was seen as one of the simmering points, one of the triggers. And indeed, there was this whole argument about taxation of tea leading to the chant, which wasn't actually used as much as people think it was during the revolution of no taxation without representation. In other words, if we're going to pay tax, we want MPs in Britain. Thank you very much. Kind of makes sense. But anyway, what's what's forgotten about that tea tax is it did prove to be so unpopular that it was removed. So no, the tea tax was not actually a trigger for the American Revolution. However, because it was seen as a British drink. Tea is obviously consumed in America, but that's why Americans drink more coffee than tea, because coffee wasn't as popular in Britain as tea was. So if we're going to go against the old colonial power, let's use the other hot beverage. Now, we ain't doing coffee this time around, but if you like this one, happy to do coffee in another foodie-type Condensed Histories podcast. So yeah, so there's an example of how tea helped to trigger a revolution which created a whole new country, which today, right now, is the most powerful nation on planet Earth, partly to do with tea. Then let's talk about how the British drink tea. It was in Britain, they were the first people to add milk to tea, which is considered largely disgusting in most of Asia. Why on earth would you do that? Going back to the cheese thing, lactose intolerant, it just wasn't a thing. So yeah, for some reason, Britain decided to add milk to their tea. And if you're sitting there drinking a milky tea, Good on you. You're absolutely, you can drink tea however you want. And also sugar. Again, sugar was incredibly expensive before the industrial era and just generally wasn't used that much in Asia. So it was Britain that started producing the sugar to add to their tea. And there's been some, I'm going to say slightly reductive, there's a, there's a point to be made here, but we don't want to over make it that because Britain loved its tea and loved its tea with sugar, those two component parts basically weren't produced in Britain. And therefore, those were some of the things that helped the trade. The sugar trade comes from sugar plantations, sugarcane plantations. How do you deal with that? You get slaves. And so you've got this sort of sugar, slave, money triangle in the Atlantic, the slave trade. And it's partly to do with Britain not getting enough sugar. We want more sugar and we, we like sugar and all kinds of things. But of course, pretty much everybody in Britain by, let's say, 1750 was drinking tea. It was, it was not something exclusively for rich people. Indeed, tea 
coming to Britain, Britain was one of the last places to get it. It came in originally via the Portuguese and then Spanish, and then it was Charles II who married a Spanish lady. Oh, sorry, Portuguese, Portuguese lady. So, so sorry about that. Oh, Catherine of Braganza. Oh, I made that mistake once on the Facebook page. Oh, my goodness. Uh, all hell broke loose. So, yes, I corrected myself there. But because of these Portuguese missionaries into China, they brought their taste of tea and some samples to the Portuguese kingdom. And then, yes, it made it to Britain. And I love it. Catherine Braganza, actually, when she arrived in Britain, said, oh, I need a cup of tea. And they just didn't know what it was. So they just gave us some mead instead. That ain't the same thing. So, yeah, so that's one dark side. But then I'm going to finish on a positive with tea, OK? Because we all know India produces a lot of tea. And I did say, actually, it turns out there's some indigenous tea. But that tea was brought from China to India because Britain wanted to break the monopoly of tea in China. China knew it had something that the world wanted and guarded it secretly. And while you can always steal seeds, the problem with stealing seeds is you're not quite sure what the pH level, the acidity of the soil, how much moisture. It's very hard to bring a full-grown plant from a seed if you've got no information. So there was something that was invented called the Wardian case, which is kind of like a cross between a, a suitcase and a greenhouse. It's a little teeny tiny portable greenhouse. So if you can get some if you can get some saplings, if you can get some young plants, those are much easier to grow and you can obviously start splitting them off and growing them from there. So yeah, there are lots of problems with the British Empire. The British Empire, as I've already mentioned, you know, the transatlantic slave uh, slavery was a bad thing, no doubt about it, one of the great crimes against humanity. However, when countries like India want to talk about, ah, oh, the British, all they did was come over here and destroy, it's like, you are making today billions from international trade deals to do with tea. And yet all those plantations were set up by the British. They weren't set up because they wanted India to be wonderfully independent. You, you know, they weren't set up for, for like wonderfully humanitarian reasons, but you're still using them. And so, yeah, those wouldn't exist without the British horticulture and the invention of the Wardian case and the, the international trade network that Britain had with its empire. So, yeah, tea is a surprisingly imperial drink. So there we go. We've done pasta. We've done cheese. We've done hamburgers. We've done tea. Really hope you like this one. As always, I'd love to get your feedback on this. Did this work for you? If it did, I'm happy to do another one. As always, another podcast coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.